I'm Nathan Rutherford, and welcome to Myth Madness. This is episode 3, The Titanomachy. Last time, I began with the beginning of the universe. It wasn't a big bang for the ancient Greeks. Instead, it all started with a large, empty space called chaos that was gradually filled with several strange beings and abstractions that doubled as the physical geography of the world. From them, we got two general families, the descendants of Nyx, or Night, and the descendants of Gaia, the Earth. From Gaia and her son-turned-husband Uranus, the twelve titans, three cyclopses, and three hundred-handed, fifty-headed giants, the Hecatonchires, were born. Uranus, ever the deadbeat dad, decided to prevent his children from being born by pushing them back inside their mother, Gaia. Gaia recruited her son Kronos, one of the titans, to overthrow Uranus. Kronos did so by castrating Uranus with a sharp sickle, removing his power, Freudian reference nonwithstanding, and becoming the next king of the universe. But his first act as king was to betray his mother by re-imprisoning his brothers, the Cyclops and the Hecatonchires. I told you how afterwards, the titans formed brother-sister couples, and had their own families of children. Kronos himself matched with his sister Rhea. He was previously told by Uranus that he will be overthrown by his own children, and because of that, Kronos tries to prevent his children's births by swallowing them whole, one by one. Now, Rhea becomes very upset by this. Who wouldn't? So when she becomes pregnant with her sixth child, Zeus, she goes to her mother Gaia to devise a plan. Rhea is sent to Crete, and when she gave birth to Zeus, Gaia took him in her arms in the middle of the night and hid the baby in a secret cave in the forests around Mount Asium. In place of Zeus, a stone was dressed up and swaddled in blankets like a baby and taken to Kronos. He took the bundle and without giving it a look, swallowed it whole. And Kronos had no idea that it was just a stone and that his real son was safe and sound and hidden away. There are different versions here of where and with who Zeus was hidden. Hesiod says it was at Lictus in Crete. Sometimes the mountain where the cave is located is called Mount Ida or Mount Dicti. Apollodorus gives a lot of additional details in his library. He says Zeus was brought to a cave on Mount Dicti in Crete and put in the care of two nymphs named Ida and Adrestia, daughters of Melissius. These nymphs feed him with the milk of a goat called Amalthea, or Adamanthea, who is sometimes also said to be a nymph. In another tradition, the infant Zeus is fed honey from bees. The cradle of the infant Zeus is hung in a tree so that it floats neither in heaven, on earth, or in the sea, and can't be detected by Kronos. Zeus is also protected by a group of armed spirits called the Corites. So that Kronos won't hear the baby's cries, the Corites dance around, clanging their spears and shields together to drown out the noise of the infant crying. That to me sounds like it would probably just make the crying worse, but that's the solution to their problem. But regardless of the version, wherever he was and whoever he was with, Zeus quickly grows up, increasing his strength and preparing to challenge his father. The first step is to rescue his siblings from their unpleasant zero out of five stay in the depths of Kronos's belly. To do so, Kronos is tricked into taking an emetic, a solution that will cause him to vomit. Hesiod says that he was tricked by Gaia, but Apollodorus says it was actually the young titan Métis who did this work. With Métis at least, it seems we already have one titan at least 
who is tired of Kronos and ready to bring about a new world order. Once ingesting the emetic, Kronos throws up the stone that was made to look like the infant Zeus, and then vomits up Zeus's siblings in reverse order. This now makes Zeus the oldest, and Hestia, originally the eldest daughter, is now the youngest. Presumably, they are all full-grown and ready to join Zeus in his coming struggle. On Gaia's advice, Zeus goes to Tartarus to start a jailbreak, and release his six uncles, the three Cyclops, and the three Hecatonchires. According to Polydorus, he kills the Jailer, a female monster called Campe, to set them free. They are eternally grateful to Zeus for releasing him, and join his planned rebellion against Kronos. The Cyclopses, skilled smiths and makers of weapons, create for Zeus powerful weapons of destruction, the Thunderbolts. Apollodorus says the Cyclopses created things for Zeus's brothers as well, a trident for Poseidon, and a helmet for Hades. The Hecatonchieri Cotus promises their support in a speech to Zeus. He says, We know that your wisdom and understanding is exceeding, and that you became a defender of the Deathless Ones from Chill Doom, and through your devising we are come back again from the murky gloom and from our merciless bonds, enjoying what we looked not for, O Lord, son of Kronos. And so now, with fixed purpose and deliberate counsel, we will aid your power in dreadful strife and will fight against the Titans in hard battle. And thus begins the Titanomachy, the War of the Titans, the war that will determine who will rule the universe, the newcomer Zeus and his siblings, or the older Kronos and his. Zeus and his siblings establish their homes and base of operations at Mount Olympus. In subsequent myths, they remain there still. Living at Mount Olympus gives Zeus's family the name the Olympians. The Titans, meanwhile, have been based on another mountain, Mount Othares. In the real world, both these mountains are located in Thessaly, a region within Greece. The war between the Titans and Olympians lasts for ten long years. The fighting is continuous and bitter, with no end in sight. The boundless sea rang terribly around, and the earth crashed loudly. The heavens shook and groaned with the fighting. Olympus reeled from its foundation under the charge of the undying gods, and a heavy quaking even reached Tartarus far below. The armies launched their spears at each other, and the battle cries of both armies reached to the starry heavens above. But finally, Zeus unleashed his full power, no longer holding back. He arrived from heaven and Olympus at the head of a mighty thunderstorm, hurling lightning thick and fast and whirling flame. The earth and forests burn, wood crackling with fire, and the flames rising to the upper air of the atmosphere. Rivers and oceans bubbled and boiled, and the hot vapors surrounded the titans. The flashing of lightning blinded the titans, and the storm winds brought earthquakes and dust storms. A truly apocalyptic scene. But interestingly, following Hesiod's account, it was not enough. And the fighting continued. Its combatants cried out but did not give up and instead continued fighting. But then, Zeus's other secret weapon was brought into the war. Gaia had previously prophesied to Zeus that if he were to release the Hecatonchires from Tartarus, he would have victory against Kronos. And so here they came, ready to make good on their promise to help him. At this point, after Zeus had scorched the battlefield with lightning and flame, the Hecatonchires threw huge rocks with their hundred hands. 300 rocks, enough to put the titans in shadow as the rocks sailed through the air. The titans were finally buried beneath these rocks, and unable to continue the war, they surrendered. 
The defeated Titans were bound in chains and placed far beneath the earth in Tartarus, where the Cyclops and the Hecatonchires had been imprisoned before. So what does this prison look like? Above Tartarus are the roots of the earth. Tartarus is said to be so far below the earth that an anvil falling from heaven would take nine days to reach the earth, and then would take another full nine days to fall from the earth to Tartarus. The entrance is sealed with walls and huge bronze gates built by Poseidon himself. Once past the gates, it's possible to go deeper still. Hesiod says that if a man were to enter the pit of Tartarus, it would take a whole year to reach the bottom. The journey between would not be pleasant either. Cruel winds would blow anyone every which way, and Hesiod says the winds would be awful for even immortal visitors as well. And there, in the misty gloom of the universe's end, Kronos and the Titans were hidden. And who are their jailers? None other than the three Hecatonchires. Apparently, all their time in Tartarus had made them grow accustomed to all its mist and gloom. They were perfectly happy to stay as long as they were not the ones chained up. Before we move on from the Titanomachy, I want to touch on something that puzzles me about the big bad Titan himself, Kronos. For the last few episodes, I've retold the Greek creation myth, especially going into detail on the Titans, their origins, their family units, and their war with the Olympians. The primary Titan of importance is Kronos. He's crafty, scheming, deposes his father, reneges on freeing the Cyclopses and the Hecatonchires, and he tries to eat all his children. In these myths, he's not made out to be a particularly nice guy. Back in episode 1, I introduced the myth of the different ages. The Golden Age is described as if it's a paradise. Plenty of food, no need for rules, it's peaceful, people are happy. And perhaps strangely, our ruler of the universe during this age is Kronos. What's more, the end of the Golden Age comes when Zeus replaces Kronos. Taking that into consideration, I've often wondered if Kronos ruled the world during the Golden Age, and the world has slowly gone to crap since, did any Greeks wish Kronos was still around? Was Kronos worshipped? In fact, how the Greeks regarded Kronos may be a bit more nuanced than how the creation myths make him out to us 21st century people. You see, even in Hesiod's other poem, Works and Days, we get a different side of Kronos than what Hesiod shows us in the Theogony. In Works and Days, we are told that Zeus eventually freed Kronos from Tartarus and made him the ruler of the Isles of the Blessed. This is the area of the afterlife reserved for the greatest of heroes. In terms of worship, though, I couldn't find any evidence that Kronos had temples built in his honor or had sacrifices made to him. However, Kronos did have his own festival. In Athens, the Kronia was celebrated. It almost seems like an ancient Greek version of Carnival. People feasted, dined together, and played games. Social norms were temporarily ignored, and there were role reversals. Apparently, the festival tried to imitate life during the Golden Age, the time when Kronos ruled the Earth. In ancient Rome, Kronos actually seems more important than he was in Greece. The Romans identified their god Saturn with the Greek Kronos. There was a strong Greek influence on Rome, and it is hard to see what is Greek and what is uniquely Roman or indigenous Italian. Saturn was an important god of agriculture and wealth. There was a temple to Saturn in Rome, and he had a very important festival, similar in style to the Cronia, called the Saturnalia. Regardless, what happened after Kronos was imprisoned? Apollodorus, but also Homer in the epic poem The Iliad, tells us that after the Titans were defeated, the three Olympian brothers drew lots to determine their realms of responsibility. Zeus was granted the heavens, Poseidon the sea, 
and Hades, the underworld. The Earth and Mount Olympus were kept common to all three, but of course, Zeus was still paramount and considered the king of the gods. Now, I've always wondered how this drawing lots business worked. Strangely, it always makes me think of drawing straws, but the idea of Zeus holding straws and making Poseidon and Hades pick some just seems, frankly, ridiculous. Drawing straws is also more of a modern practice anyway. The ancient Greeks didn't do it. There's also a common opinion that this wasn't a fair drawing of lots, and Zeus rigged it, took the heavens for himself, and his brothers left grumbling. It's a nice idea, but it's not true to the actual Greek source material. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I think part of the fun about learning myths is then thinking about how to fill in the gaps. But there's not really evidence that Hades and Poseidon were dissatisfied with what they were given. For example, having control of the underworld meant Hades actually controlled all the wealth within the earth. Also, Zeus really didn't need to trick them anyway. He'd saved them from the guts of Kronos, after all, and then won the war. Regardless of that, how did they choose the lots? I think I might have an answer. You see, in ancient Rome, there was a method of telling the future, where various things would be written on little tablets, and these would be thrown into a large urn. People would then reach in, pull out a tablet, and find out something. Maybe Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades all drew lots out of an urn like this. We just don't really know what the ancient Greeks meant by drawing lots. The lots thing is mentioned by Homer and Apollodorus, but it's not brought up by Hesiod in the Theogony's Titanomachy section. But it's possible it could have appeared in another epic poem that is lost to us today. In fact, the myths of Zeus's upbringing and the entire war between the Titans and the Olympians was also the subject of an epic poem called the Titanomachy. This poem's authorship is uncertain, but it's attributed to Eumulus of Corinth, a bard who was a member of the ruling family there. He may have composed the Titanomachy sometime in the late 7th century BC. As I mentioned, the poem itself is lost to history, but it's quoted by some other Greek writers from later periods. What's really interesting, too, is that some of those quotes provide us with details that are different from the Hesiod version. The poem likely started with a preamble, telling about the origins of the gods, who were everyone's parents, who partnered with who, and of course, there were undoubtedly discrepancies. For example, Aether is given as the father of Aranos. There are some other Greeks who thought that Aether was the father of Aranos as well. Zeus's childhood was also different in Eumulius's Titanomachy. While Hesiod has Zeus in Crete, Eumulus says Zeus was born in Lydia, a country that was in what is now Turkey. The specific site is probably Mount Sipolis, as this was an important cult site in the Greek world and by preceding cultures. So we seem to have two competing traditions regarding where the infant Zeus grew up. One has him on a mountain in Crete, and the other on a mountain in Lydia. What's more, one line we have from Eumulius's Titanomachy gives a description of a young Zeus dancing. The line is, In the midst of them danced the father of men and gods. When I was discussing Zeus's time in Crete, I provided additional details from Apollodorus. One of those details involved the Corites, a group of armed spirits who dance around the infant Zeus. What's interesting here is that idea of dancing. Eumulus says Zeus danced in the middle of a group. Could that group be the Corites? Seems plausible to me. That would mean that if there were originally two distinct traditions about where Zeus grew up, Corites would have been in the Lydia tradition, and it's likely these were later combined together and written as such by Apollodorus. There could actually even be more than two traditions that were later combined together. Eumulus's Titanomachy likely gives a more detailed breakdown on who was on the sides of Zeus and Kronos during the war. 
For example, one surviving fragment says the Titan Minotius, a son of the Titan Iapetus, sided with Cronos and was blasted by Zeus and imprisoned in Tartarus. But Hesiod makes it sound like Zeus blasted him because he was being a pain in Zeus's rear end, and this had nothing to do with the war. But one other quote presents another interesting difference found within the Titanomachy poem. It concerns the role of the Hecatonchires. In Hesiod's Theogony, the Hecatonchires, Cyclops, and Titans are all children of Gaia and Aranos. The Hecatonchires are three hundred-handed, fifty-headed giants, and the three of them are treated as a unit. The three of them are imprisoned by Aranos, the three of them are imprisoned again by Kronos, and then the three of them are released by Zeus. After the Titans are imprisoned, Hesiod says the three Hecatonchires then go back to Tartarus to guard it. However, a little bit later in the Theogony, Hesiod contradicts himself. At that point, he says Kodos and Gaius returned to guard Tartarus, while Briareos marries a daughter of Poseidon and presumably goes to live in the sea. An interesting difference, showing Briareos is special in some way. A quote from Eumulus's Titanomachy gives another example of Briareos's specialness. In this poem, he is called by another name, Aegeon, and is not the son of Aranos and Gaia. He is instead said to be the son of Pontus and Gaia. What's more, this Aegeon also fought on the side of the Titans. It's pretty fascinating stuff, but he has a different name, so you might think maybe this is actually a different hundred-hander. Maybe there were, in fact, four Hecatonchires, and this one, Aegeon, fought with the Titans while the other three fought with the Olympians. It's a nice theory, but a reference in the Iliad does suggest that that's not true. Homer says that the gods call him Briareos in their own language, but humans use the name Aegeon. So, Briareos and Aegeon are the same person. This means that according to Eumulus, the allegiance of the Hecatonchires and the Titanomachy is split, with two siding with the Olympians and one special one siding with the Titans. To make matters even more confusing, though, Take this example from the Iliad of another episode with Briareos. This snippet appears in a conversation between two characters, so it is not the focus of a scene. Instead, it is simply alluded to. The gist of it is this, that at some point in the past, before the Trojan War, there was a conflict in some way among the gods. Zeus was on one side, and several of the other gods, including Poseidon, Hera, and even Athena, side against Zeus and intend to bind him in some way. The sea nymph Thetis sides with Zeus, and she goes and brings Briareus to Olympus, presumably from the sea, to side with Zeus. When the other gods see Briareus there, sitting next to Zeus, they become afraid and abandon their plans to chain the king of the gods. I bring all this up because it shows something that I find really fascinating about mythology. The different versions of a myth story often contradict each other, compete with each other, and are sometimes combined with each other over time. According to Hesiod, Briareos fought with Zeus in the Titanomachy, and probably went to the sea afterwards to become Poseidon's son-in-law. Eumulus says Aegean fought against the Titans, and his name, Aegean, is similar to the Asian Sea, shows a linguistic link with that sea and other Greek words related to the ocean. Meanwhile, Homer in the Iliad has Briareos, aka Aegean, brought to Olympus to side with Zeus in a dispute with gods including Poseidon, who is supposedly Briareus' father-in-law. Then there is the question about who Briareus' father is, Aranos or Pontus? There are also other references to Briareus by other later Greek writers that add to the confusion, such as that he fought against Poseidon at some point and lost. 
Some people look at the contradictions in myths and think that this is just because they were written down such a long time ago, and what has survived to us today is incomplete. And that is indeed true. Yet, the same people might be tempted to think that if we did have full versions of the myths, that these contradictions would disappear and be replaced by a more complicated but seamless story, and that the ancient Greeks knew this complete story. Think of it like this. If you took a book today and removed entire chapters or individual lines of text and buried it, would archaeologists a thousand or two thousand years from now find your book and be confused by the story? They would probably be missing key parts of it. Can you think of myths like this too, though? If some ancient Greek had written an encyclopedia, or a huge epic story going from the creation of the world to the end of the world, telling all the stories of Greek myth together, could we read it today and make sense of it all? Well, I don't actually think so. Some of the different versions or traditions of the myths were more well known at certain times, but also in certain places. In addition, even the same poet, looking at you, Hesiod, in particular, sometimes tell different versions at the same time. Why is this? First of all, these stories were told orally, so the poets and bards telling them were only relying on their memory. Sometimes they would trip up. Sometimes they would add details. Sometimes they would hear a version they maybe had not heard before and try and remember that one for next time. Then, of course, there were the specific moments where these stories were eventually written down. As all of this happened, though, the myths developed over time. Then also, there is this. The myths the poets were telling did not really belong to them. The versions they were telling were based on the stories they heard, which were in turn based on those of previous generations, and on and on and on, with progressively more ancient mythic material. This process made the different traditions and the holes in the stories. I would argue the ancient Greeks even recognized that this was happening, and knew about the holes, and tried to figure out the inconsistencies and make sense of them. For example, a lot of the details we know about Eumulus's Titanomachy come in the writings of other Greeks, and they usually come in the form of quotes that go something like this. The writer of the Titanomachy says, yada yada yada. In similar ways to us, the ancient Greeks were seeking to understand their myths too. The myths were not just nonsense dreamed up by unscientific people trying to understand an unknown world. They were also strange and mysterious pieces of knowledge that could be analyzed to better understand the universe. In short, myth is weird, wibbly-wobbly stuff. And this is not actually a bug. Instead, it always was a feature. That's all for today. Next episode, I'll tell how the Olympians picked up the pieces after the war with the Titans, and how Zeus began his reign as the king of the universe.